0: Hold on to your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners.
1: Hooey pleases the boobs a
0: great deal more than sense.
1: Whoa, is us! We're in a lot of trouble!
0: In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What
1: the hell are we doing here?
0: We are behaving the way a superpower ought to be. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our job. Joey
2: Clark. Uh, hello and welcome to the program. You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour Be sure to go to Facebook, like our page, and to build up a following here, you can catch guests I have upcoming, some special things I'm doing upcoming. Just follow what I'm thinking about, what I'm posting. For instance, today, Reason.com came out and said that if you are a run-of-the-mill Democrat or Republican, you should talk to your libertarian friend. It'll help you get out of your political bubble. Now, it's a bit self-serving on my part, but I don't just talk to libertarians. And now I want to get to the actual meat of tonight's show. Because the, well, it's not really an album of the day. It's kind of a score of the day. And this particular part of the score was suggested by by my brother, Will Clark, who
3: is sitting here in studio with me. What's up, man? Not much, man. Just happy to be here, especially with this topic.
2: Well, and you loved this song right here. Or you love this song
3: right here. Yeah. It's a great morning alarm. Oh, so this is your morning alarm. It is.
2: Oh, that's peaceful. It is peaceful. So one day, do you want to live
3: in a hobbit hole? Definitely. Uh, you know, it's just a fantastic piece of, piece of architecture. Uh, not to mention I'm a nerd about the entire series, as we covered the last time I was here. But You know how much those arches are going to cost, though? I don't. I have no idea. Like the, a round architecture like that? Apparently it's been done in Montana. I was, reaching mm. it, I was researching that today. and uh, you know, I think it's been done in, in multiple places around the world. Most notably, New Zealand, of course. The set has been preserved for tourists to go to outside of Rotorua on the North Island. Very cool. Now, let's bring the
2: audience in here a little bit. <clears throat> because we just started off. Uh, how did this come up? Like, how did we get back to where we're like, okay, we're going to talk about Lord of the Rings and Tolkien tonight?
3: Well, I think it was, we kind of ended the last show that I was on with the fact that uh, Xbox or, or PS4, they were coming out with a new game called Middle Middle Earth uh, Shadow of War. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've been playing that for a long time, or the past couple weeks, ever sure. since it came out. And, and I think that that kind of sparked you and I wanting, we were like, we haven't watched the extended cut uh, movies in a long time. And you're, girlfriend hadn't seen it either. She hadn't watched it with me. We had made multiple attempts. But you fall asleep because these movies are so damn long. Right. And we even chopped it up into four or five nights. Right. I mean, the third movie extended is four hours and ten minutes, roughly. Wow. It's incredible.
2: Well, I made the mistake, I guess, on Wednesday night or Tuesday night of watching all of... Yeah, it had to be... I think, Wednesday night. I watched all of Return of the King.
3: Yeah, yeah. You watched the first half with us, and then you put the... Because it was a DVD, the second disc. Mm-hmm. Almost like Titanic VHS. Um, you put the second disc out in the living room, where Caroline and I just couldn't make it. You know. Yeah,
2: and I was up till two in the morning. And then I came I in in the morning for an interview with Baron, and I was just... I was dog-tired out Thursday night. You are like Frodo at the night. end of the
1: quest. Yeah,
2: yeah. And it's... Watching these movies again, first off, it's a huge achievement, putting this story on film. But it made me wonder, because when these first came out, it was 2001, 2002, 2003. Mm -hmm. They shot all the movies at the same time, pretty much? At the same time. It was an undertaking that
3: people thought was crazy. And even the actors were like, oh, okay. But Peter Jackson had a vision for it.
2: And really, it's to
3: the pride of New Zealand. It is. where all
2: these scenic shots in these Lord of the Rings movies are New Zealand
3: for the, the of majority of the crew almost the entire crew was were Kiwis were from New Zealand uh, Weta workshops did all of the special effects all of the orc makeup that you see uh, the choreographed fight scenes even part of the battle scenes, the extras I believe were part of the native one of the native tribes in New Zealand I, I might have a wrong, Maori Uh, But I believe they were included in it as well. So they did everything to make it as much a part of New Zealand as a part of Middle Earth. And in a way, New Zealand is now Middle Earth.
2: Well, and I've read the books once. So the books are a little different than the movies, which Peter Jackson and the filmmakers admit to. They said we had to adapt it Mm -hmm. for the screen uh, and again, it was such it's a testament to their work, to the folks in New Zealand who worked on the film, to where then they did the premiere of the
3: last film, Return of the King. It was what a hundred thousand about hundred and twenty thousand people lined the streets of Wellington as a parade of the actors and the crew and Peter Jackson and everybody. Uh, came through, 120,000 people lined that street.
2: This is where it's crazy for me. You get that with some political parades. You get Mm -hmm. that with maybe your world champions in some sport. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you had a football game and college football Saturday. But 120,000 people, it's like, for a movie? Yeah. And you think, it's oh, it's for a movie and these guys are trying to escape from the world. And when you read the books... One of the criticisms of the books and of Tolkien was that he was just engaging in escapism, and I don't think this is true because I'm I was rewatching the movies like we just went over like this is a modern day myth. Mm-hmm. What was it that? You picked up a book where they talked about how essentially he Tolkien created. It's it's almost like he's Homer mm-hmm. writing the Iliad or the Odyssey,
3: right? But
2: he also created all of Greek mythology in order to write those epic poems.
3: Exactly. You know, he, he knew that at that point, England didn't necessarily have an established uh, mythology of its own. It took elements of other mythologies, Greek mythology. Uh, Roman mythology basically took Greek mythology and just kind of tweaked it a little bit. Being And he was a linguist. So he I mean, was a linguist. Uh, went to Oxford. Um, and that, that book you were talking about is a, a Tolkien a Dictionary, which is a great way to, if you are more interested in this series and this uh, trilogy of books and not just the movies, in addition to The Hobbit and the more dense Silmarillion, it's a great way to pick up uh, a lot of the things that you just kind of tune out in the movies that sound too sing-songy, and you're like, I don't know what they're talking about there. Right. Um, but it just—it mentions, Tolkien quotes, that I, I had a mind to make a body of more or less connected legend, ranging from the large and cosmogic to the level of romantic fairy story, which I could dedicate simply to England, to my country. Okay. And he succeeded beyond his wildest dreams
2: because it not only found success in England, his own country, but uh, worldwide. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing that this came out of World War I as I looked into this over the week it, in the summer of 1916 Tolkien is sent into the Great War mm-hmm. and it's the particular battle, the Battle of Somme he's 24 years old and to give perspective to folks, I think before nightfall on the first advance nearly 20,000 British soldiers die, and that's not counting people on the other side, I think something like 1.5 million if not more people die in the Battle of Somme. And Tolkien actually is the guy who is coordinating a lot of the artillery fire and troop movements. He's essentially the messenger, but he's receiving heavy fire in the trenches. And I believe his son, Christopher, is the one who discovered, like, handwritten beginnings of this world, this Mm -hmm. mythology created out of his mind and, you know, tweaking the other traditions. And, you know, there are a lot of ways people react to traumatic events. Uh, There are people, especially in the case of war, who might turn to drugs or alcohol. You might go immediately like start a family. It sort of puts things in perspective. Uh, People who escape traumatic events have a hard time of staying in the present. Um, It's our cousin Scott gave me a book by Viktor Frankl. Uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Mm -hmm. And a big part of that book is being in a Nazi concentration camp. But after people survive that horror, when they get out, they often have this feeling like nobody understands what I went through. Nobody can understand the gravity of what was happening, the horror, the craziness of what was happening. And life, in a way, feels very dull. Like I'm, I died on that battlefield. Even though I'm still living and breathing here today, and that's very much caught in Tolkien's books, especially near the end. Like that's how, how everybody sails away. Like, did you die? Did Frodo mm. die at the end after destroying the Ring? Do the elves die? You know, they go to the Undying Lands. And I like how Tolkien leaves things purposely vague. Mm. Um, but all these ways of reacting, and this guy creates myth. And for, by all accounts, he didn't become that person who didn't feel alive after the war. He dealt with his PTSDs, we would call it today, or his shell shock, by creating these myths. And it wasn't pure escapism. And this is what has gotten me through tough times, is you look to, to sort of the poetic ways you can apply philosophy and apply your traditions. And music does it for me. Movies like this do it for me. And Tolkien's message isn't really... And this is to me, and I want to give it floor to you after this. It's not that the world is bleak and bleaker still. It's not that, oh, everything's tragic, it's going to end in war, and that power is always corrupting. I mean, that's part of the message. But he sets up this bleak, crazy, horrific world. The battle scenes are very much like the battle scenes you would have seen in World War One from the trenches, as Tolkien experienced. But he says, even though all that is going on, people can do heroic things and people can do incredibly beautiful things. Even in the midst of all these great evils. And at the end of the day, if people push far enough and fight far enough for what is right and what is good, evil is, can't win. It's not possible. That's so much of his imagery is always, yeah, this bad thing's going on, but there's always something on the horizon that'll be a brighter day. Uh, which I think is a wonderful message and shows his uh, fortitude, his courage, but also his imagination. It's remarkable. Like, when you first saw these movies, were they really just an escape? Like, oh, this is really cool? Or did you early on start thinking about the deeper themes?
3: No. Uh, I was nine. So, okay, I did not. Uh, I, I just thought they were cool. Um, by the time the Return of the King came out I was 12 uh, so that that to me I, I started to pick up on a little bit more like I said earlier you know I just kind of tuned out the sing songy elvish words or references back to uh, the vast lore that Tolkien had created first starting in the trenches in Solm where he was scribbling down notes about Middle Earth itself while, while t- artillery shells were falling all around him mm. Um you know it didn't really hit me to think deeper about it i think until i got to the end of high school and then definitely college and i think part of it was video games reigniting uh, my interest in that lore mm-hmm. just giving you a, a physical way to live out yeah. all of these things that everybody loves that is, that is yeah. sure um but to your point i mean it just Myth is something that I think that even Americans today wrap issues and and, uh, current events in to understand them. You know, we talk about the American dream, and that's not what America is, and I don't think there's no definition of what America is. There's a romanticized, less than 300-something-year-old history of this country.
2: And there's the Constitution and the Declaration and right. there's laws. But Sure.
3: But as far as what gets people feeling all warm and fuzzy about things that politicians are doing today, it's not written down. It's something that people spread around and it's like, no, you gotta this is what America stands for. This is why we have to support these people and be on this team. Hmm. Everything is wrapped in myth and it's a way for people who don't either don't know how to Look into every single issue that comes out of the central government or state government, or just don't have the time or the ability. They take a simpler approach, and oftentimes, simpler approaches is myth based. Yeah, you know, yeah. And there's nothing wrong with
2: myths. In fact, I want to encourage people to look into Tolkien's myth or any others. Like we have this big book of mythology at home, mm-hmm. and especially because you don't have to take it uh, literally. But you you essentially create within that world you fashion, whether it's science fiction or fantasy and Tolkien really spawned a whole genre. Uh, you are able to look at real issues that happen in everyday life and happen in crazy times, larger than lifetimes like world wars, the Great War. And you're able to s- study those issues in a place that isn't going to be as traumatic, that isn't going to remind you of the mundane aspects of life. You can sort of look at it instead of it being England and Germany and France and the United States and Russia and China, you can look at it and go, oh no, this is Rohan and Gondor, and it's like a completely removed world. And It allows you to sort of explore these things without a stake in it as much personally. And I like what you said about uh, Americans and myths, that I think there are some myths these days that are uh, harmful to not only Americans, but to a lot of the world. But in the context of America, I talked earlier this week about the cult of personality around the presidency. Mm -hmm. uh, That I've met a lot of people in life, I hope to meet much more, get out of my hermit hole, which might become a hobbit hole. But I have never met the people And these... We, I think, are giving too much credit to these things rather than doing the work ourselves, building families, building friendships. And really, when I said we aren't, I'm talking about myself, looking in the mirror. I need to do more work in that regard. But there are times when myths allow you to see what's wrong with other ones. For instance, I was looking at what Tolkien was saying near the end of his life because he died in like the 60s. The, the 70s. Oh, 70s. Made all the way 70s. He was looking at modern Western governments, the West, so mm-hmm. to speak. I guess that had to be in the middle of the Cold War, the craziness of the 70s, the craziness especially of the 60s. And he worried that because he was a devout Catholic, Tolkien was, mm-hmm. uh, that Western governments had become the Tower of Babel. Now, I read that today, and I said that earlier this week. And it's not like, oh, Joey's so insightful. No, it's like, wow, maybe I'm on to something where a guy who grew up in the same faith and tradition as me is seeing the same thing. And essentially, the idea is that we're sort of worshiping at the altar of government, uh, that we are expecting or worshiping at the altar of the people. And we expect our governments to be able to provide us meaning and order in life when the meaning has to come from you. It has to come from a more philosophical basis, from, if you will, a religious basis. And that's where I want to move to the heart of this story. It's the one ring. So essentially the, the background of the Lord of the Rings is that Sauron's thousands of years old. He lives in different ages. Yeah, very old.
3: And there's this, the Numenor? Numenor, it's a an island in the middle of the east and west portions of this universe and it's, I guess, the origin of men. A higher race of men originated from this island. It's in, They had special abilities. Right. It's an allegory for Atlantis. It was swallowed up by the sea. You know, Tolkien takes from bunch of different mythologies, Uh, Norse for the Rohan or the Rohan people, um, and then Numenor being the the descendants or the uh, ancestors of Gondor. Well, and Sauron at this time is actual a
2: being, a physical being, and like a lot of bad guys in mythology um, and history, he's actually his outward appearance is incredibly beautiful, Mm -hmm. and he and he realizes I can't defeat these powerful incredibly able people I want to do evil, I want to conquer the whole world power at the end of the day is what Sauron wants, Mm -hmm. it's the same theme as in 1984, that's what the party wants the object of power is power Mm -hmm. and power is making others suffer and I see that so often with other governments But so Sauron realizes hmm, I can't do it by beating them in battle and beating them in war what I'm going to do is I'm going to present myself as a gift giver as this beautiful being who's just trying to help, but slowly but surely over thousands of years, he corrupts them, mm-hmm. and this he does
3: this with the rings. Mm-hmm. Now, how does he do this with the ring? He initially, he, and like you said, he can. He's one of the most ancient beings. His, I guess, boss you would call him, being Morgoth. Sauron was never the big bad. Hmm. The first and the second age was all you know, pretty much dominated by Morgoth. He made all the dragons, he made the Balrogs, he made everything. He made Sauron. And Morgoth is also uh, a nod to Satan. Okay, He was one of the original, basically, angels. And he was the only one who wasn't interested in the beauty of the earth. He just wanted to destroy everything.
2: And it started where he wanted to sing
3: a different song. Exactly. Yeah, than the rest of the angels and God. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Very close to Satan. Mm Um, so Sauron's basically his lackey, but he's also a sorcerer, so he's got a bunch of powers, and he takes a beautiful form like that of an elf. You know, they're supposed to be some of the most beautiful beings in that universe. It seem to glow with an aura. Uh, so he does take that form and, pres- and makes magical rings to give to the leaders of all the different races. Nine to the realm of men, I believe three to the elves, five to the dwarves, and little did he tell them that it's secret he made one last one the one ring, that as soon as he brought it out, it corrupted all of the other rings. Hmm. Except for the elves who had a little bit more... Uh, except for the elves and the dwarves, because men were seen to be the weaker race. Hmm. They were more, more easily corruptible. More by easily power. corruptible by power. Hmm. Which is you know, well, a pretty obvious nod. Everyday nodded.
2: life. Exactly. Um, and that's what fascinates me, is he gives them power... He does, and the rings are powerful. They give different abilities, different types of rings give different abilities. But the, uh, the one ring makes you invisible, mm-hmm. which is very interesting. It controls all the others. But the fact that it makes you invisible is fascinating to me. Like, you literally become a wraith. Like, you lose your
3: sense of self. To get all this power, you have to lose who you are. Right. And I, I think it was one of the appendices we were watching the other day is that Tolkien was trying to come up with a name for these Wraith or the Nazgul, and so they're called. And he I'm not sure if Wraith really existed in the common use, but he was trying to search for a word and if you look at it and dissect it, he you look at possibly wrath, which of course mm. is you know, anger and just intense wrath. Yeah. You know, a lot of people know that it means writhe is another word that somewhat ties into what Wraith means, and that's his linguistic background, just coming into a beautiful Brilliant. combination to create the name of Wraith. Well, and
2: it's what I, at the end of the day, been having these conversations about faith or lack of an certain one, whatever, and I've been wanting to do this publicly. Mm-hmm. It's working out great, I think. Okay, uh, A lot of people, some people want to talk about and they're a little worried about me, yeah. and, they, and that's fine. I'm. I, that's very sweet. Of them and I don't mean that in a sarcastic way. I I appreciate it and others are saying thank you for talking about this. I've felt this way and I've carried it with me. I'm glad somebody else out there thinks like I do and these are people who go to church who don't go to church. Uh, So when you look at the power that these rings offer and you start to lose yourself, you start to become a, a ghost essentially that you're angry, and you're writhing, Uh, you lose that sense of self, and you, well, at the end of the day, are required to sort of prey on other people, and make other people serve you. you. You're never happy by yourself with your own accomplishments, with your own deeds. You're always wanting more and to make more and more people suffer. And I find this beautiful, and the reason I brought up the faith conversation, because at the end of the day, for me, it is about understanding and love and the narratives we tell ourselves and how we use our language. So, Tolkien is hitting the nail on the head for me. He's hitting all these buttons for me. Now I know he's a devout Roman Catholic. And it makes me go, well, maybe I should look back at the faith I was raised in. Mm-hmm. But... I think it's so important the words we choose to use and that the power of our words really does uh, lead us in a certain direction. Um, And There's all sorts of esoteric philosophy on maybe it's the language we use keeps us from having certain concepts, blah, 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 blah. But Tolkien wanted to make clear (laughs) that he wasn't trying to create a new paganism. I have to give him his due. Mm -hmm. He very much said, a lot of what I believe in comes from my faith. And it's about essentially repackaging some of my ideas and reinforcing the message with, in his opinion, better... Well, maybe not better words. He saw the gospel and the gospels as sort of the basis for fairy stories and other fantasies. I I don't know if he's right on that or not, because... There's all sorts of mythology before the Gospels. There's others after the Gospels that are obviously some taking from others. Um, it it makes it uh, I don't know about his claim. I wanted to research it more. We'll have to get on somebody who maybe knows more than you or I. But it's that warning fundamentally at the end of the day that power corrupts that has me going oh wow. And that physically represent that corruption as becoming invisible and having to prey on others, I think is the perfect statement. Because Mm -hmm. the governments we've built in this world, is it really one person? It's not monarchies anymore. No. There's a you know you have Putinism in Russia, but it's a committee around Putin. Mm -hmm. You have President Xi in China, but it's a party that runs everything in China. And the Western world, we have these governments that are very intrusive into our lives, and they even try to do good things. I think we can take power in order to do great things, and you know feed the feed the hungry and help the poor and take care of the sick, these sort of things. But when it comes to the abuses, like uh, these papers, these JFK papers, there was somebody in the CIA who said, yeah, let's, uh, let's bomb part of Miami and blame it on the Cubans so we can go take Cuba. Yeah. That's just sheer evil. Yet, who was that guy who suggested that? It makes power invisible to us. And I think we are, uh, well, we try to use myths of old, We try to use faiths of old to justify some of these powers, and I think that's the central message I take away from Tolkien, is power corrupts. It's the old statement by Lord Acton. And there are other themes, though, that we can get into uh, about dealing with uh, lost love or the fates ahead of you. But again, this is the Joey Clark Radio Hour. My brother, Will Clark, is here in studio with me. In the middle of our conversation... I was realizing how nerdy we sound.
3: Yeah. Yeah, you're wearing glasses, though, so. What
1: does that mean?
3: Chew on it.
2: <laughs> well, you're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. I'm not sure if Will Clark is going to be my guest for the rest of the hour. <laughs> we'll be right back.
1: Joey Clark,
2: oh, welcome back to the Joey Clark Radio Hour.
1: Now,
3: Will, my guest tonight is my brother Will. What is this theme here? This is a theme from the second movie, Two Towers, The Riders of Rohan. Rohan's very—it's almost like a Viking culture with horses. Yeah, very, very Viking culture. They're—they're they're basically all of their warfare is on a horseback. They basically revere horses and their culture. And they've always been a very strong people, uh, very different from Gondorians who are, have that ancient uh, tie to the Numenorians. Um, some of them, like Aragorn, who's part of the Dunedain, even have extended life. And Rohan are more of a common folk kind of people hmm. who have a little bit more of a grounded approach to the race of men now if
2: you had to see yourself in one of the, their elves or dwarves don't say orc you're not an orc no i'm
3: definitely not don't an orc. even don't even No, i won't go there
2: no but elves dwarves certain groups of men the hobbits they all sort of they are archetypes of different types of people mm-hmm. like, and how they emphasize so which one do you relate with the most I
3: would like to think hobbits. I, I can't say that it would be any one of them. It, it mm. can't be just dwarves. You know, I enjoy frivolity and drinking as much as the next dwarf, but right. uh, so do hobbits. But, you know, hobbits are essentially, I think, Tolkien's effort to express the purest nature of a lot of, uh, I think, people in England. Countryside yeah. people in England. Yeah, absolutely. In the West Country. Um that they're just simple folk who enjoy the simple things in life. You know, smoking old Toby as the hobbits do. Um, And sometimes they have a little flaw like that, don't you
2: dare go on an adventure. Like when Bilbo comes back, they don't... Yeah, there are a lot of people
3: frowning, like, how dare you do things out of the ordinary? They have this aversion to to taking adventures, and they don't want to leave the Shire, and the only reason that it even starts is because of Gandalf. Hmm. He has this grasp of what the Hobbits are, and he knows that that is something that will serve very well in Bilbo's first quest, Hmm. and then with Frodo.
2: Well, in The Hobbit, he wrote initially as a children's story, Mm -hmm. and it's a fantastic read. Um, Definitely read that book to your kids, ladies and gentlemen, uh, if, like, I need to tell you that. But... The Lord of the Rings was supposed to be a sequel to, like the commission, the publisher commissioned a sequel, Mm -hmm. but it ended up being The Lord of the Rings, which is not a children's book. No. It is very much, uh, again, him grappling with traumas of war, him sort of stretching out his legs and seeing how much of a drama and history can I create out of this mythology I've built, which is uh, fascinating to me. And I don't know who I would relate to the most in terms of the different uh, elves, dwarves. It would probably be the Hobbits at the end of the day. I like that idea of a quiet life where things are you have a good life, you have food, you have drink, you have company, good friends, you probably... I love how the books and the movies capture that these people are about to go on these epic journeys where you know, crazy goblins and orcs and disembodied monsters, essentially, or essentially the devil himself is coming for you, and yet it's still, these books and these movies take the time to go, Sam has a crush on, who is it,
3: Rosie? Rosie, yeah.
2: Yeah, and so you have these little moments that are, like, you're in high school again, or you're in college, you know, like, I kind of like that person over there. God, am I going to go talk to her? It's like, you just climbed up Mount Doom,
3: well, Go when, he, talk to her. when he comes back, he goes and talks to him. "Oh, he's very he's kind. Like, I've done worse than this." <laughs> <laughs> and that's what these movies are epic, but they are relatable to a certain
2: sense, but I think people lose them because there is so much to consume. They are long. Mm-hmm. Uh, the books are long, the movies are long. But if you take the time, this is a wealth of knowledge in these books. Uh, I mean, I'm so much so I'm having trouble what to pick out to talk about. Yeah, like there's Faramir when one of the evil men is killed, and he's in the movie and he's looking down, saying, "Yeah, but let's not call him evil. He's probably doing his duty as much as any other person." Mm -hmm. That sort of empathy for the enemy soldier, right, is incredible. Mm -hmm. So, well, it's not you and I just hog the airwaves. Go to the phones and. Talk to Master Thespian. How are you doing tonight?
0: Hello. Enjoying the program tonight. Thank you. Uh, you all are talking about one of my favorite subjects. Uh, I discovered Tolkien in middle school uh, when someone suggested that I read The Hobbit. And uh, it was uh, kind of, sort of a, a mind-blowing experience for me. And then I discovered The Lord of the Rings. Uh, for a period of time there, um, for uh, I, I guess. Through my high school years, I read the entire trilogy of *The Lord of the Rings* and *The Hobbit* through once a year um, because it was it was to me it was escape from reality, but it was also uh, this idea of having heroes that I could identify with. Right, uh, Mm -hmm. Frodo and Sam were like the everyman characters, and uh, I really really enjoyed uh, Aragorn and the Faramir, the warrior poet. The idea is that these guys know they're up against the the unbeatable enemy, and yet they fight him anyway because it's the right thing to do. And uh, you know, Tolkien, from what I have read of him, was trying to create a a new mythology, sort of an Anglo-Saxon mythology. Yeah. And uh, uh, he was a a professor, and uh, of course he had had read all these things. Uh, This was before Joseph Campbell came out with his uh, his Books on mythology, and uh, I think Tolkien said, "Hey, we need some some heroes we can root for," and that's one of the reasons why he put so much detail into these books, as in his mind, he was creating a new mythology.
2: Yeah, it wasn't like he I'm creating out of the whole cloth. He's what did he say? He's unearthing, or what he uses a particular word. He's so exact with his words, but he to give the sense that it's not something that I'm oh recording. Is what he said mm-hmm. that it's not something I'm creating; it's something I'm remembering and I'm writing it down. It's mm-hmm. a, and you're talking about the Everyman characters, Master Thespian. I, uh, my, I only I've only read the trilogy once. I actually, sat and read it, but it stuck with me. And I have yeah. uh, the yep. storyline of Eowyn and Mary yeah. uh, when they kill the yeah. Witch King because uh, the Witch
0: King cannot be killed by any man, and you know, she rips her helmet off and says, "I am no man." And, and, uh, and yeah.
2: I love that, but then my favorite character is the most... He And this character is inspired, and this is what good myth-making does. It inspires all sorts of interpretations. What the hell is going on? My favorite <laughs> character is Tom Bombadil, because yeah. the, the hobbits <laughs> come across him early on in the first book, and he sees the ring, and for folks, every, the ring is pure evil, pure power, and it corrupts yeah. everybody it comes in contact with, even Frodo. Mm-hmm. And yet, Tom Bombadil looks at the ring, and he, it's like a toy to him. He's like, what's this? <laughs> <laughs> He's just always singing and makes yeah. the ring disappear and reappear. He doesn't give a damn about it. Yeah. Some days I feel that about politics in general. I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, whatever. I'm just yeah. gonna. I'm not responsible. Like that. It's not a responsible position to take, and that's why they don't get Bombadil the ring because he wouldn't give a damn about it and right. protect it. But that's who I am. Like, I just want to fun. <laughs> and Insane. Yeah, and like I'm not out there to try to control people or or solve all the world's problems. I've become this apolitical guy on political talk. So. Right. Yeah, and it's crazy how this book written in the 30s and 40s becomes something that we're talking about today and all sorts of people are talking about it and across generations. It has well, such an impact.
0: I think the movies coming out when they did had the big factor. Um, if you remember, we were dealing with the aftermath of 9-11 mm. and then the first Lord of the Rings movie came out that December. Uh, We were all in shock over what had just happened, and then when Fellowship of the Ring came out, to many people that was something to latch onto and say, hey, this is a story I can believe in. You know, my whole world is crumbling, we're dealing with terrorism, we're dealing with all these horrible things, this is a place I can go to. These are people that I can trust. You know, when you feel you can't trust the government, when you feel you can't trust your neighbors, you can trust... Mary and Sam and Frodo and Gandalf, and you can go with them, and the journey will will be a little rough, but you're still going to be okay in
2: the end. Yeah, and it's not just an escape, like we were saying at the beginning of the show. It informs you on how you could possibly deal with very difficult situations, because, again, he isn't creating this from whole cloth. He's almost reimagining what he experienced in the First World War, and putting it into this mythological world. So it's actual. I mean, this is a guy who saw his best friends die next to him. guy who saw thousands of people his age and his generation killed right in front of him by bullets and bombs and gas. And
0: mustard gas, yeah.
2: And it's crazy that somebody could come out of that situation and have such a rich, fulfilling life, not only on his own right with kids and grandkids, but... He's enriched on thousands of people, millions of people's lives across cultures. It's remarkable,
0: and it's still doing so, you know, forty years after his death. Man, yeah.
2: Well, Master Thesby, I appreciate you calling in. I'm glad you're enjoying our talk here.
0: Well, thank you, gentlemen. Carry on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Uh,
3: who's your favorite character? Hmm. Because there's so many. You know, I, I I've got to say Gandalf. Yeah, yeah, he's just present in the Hobbit, the Lord of the Rings, uh, of course. Way before then as well, he's just the embodiment of what Sauron should have been. Uh, Sauron's the other wizard who goes—he's corrupted. He was the head of the order. Mm-hmm. He was the the white. You know, the white wizard was supposed to be the head of the order, the the pure one that w- guided all the other wizards. But he obviously was corrupted, and when. Gandalf. Everything boils down to self-sacrifice really in this series. When Gandalf sacrifices himself to, to slay the Balrogs, he's falling down from the Bridge of khazad Doom. This is my Go, s- extreme nerd coming yeah. out. Um, he's rewarded by, we can only say the Valar, the kind of the demigods of the world that really have the majority of the power. And he becomes what Sauron should have been. something, Somebody who cannot be harmed by a weapon Uh, somebody who can fight against the Nazgul. Basically, the pure light in juxtaposition to the pure dark of Mm. Sauron. Wow. Yeah, and I think Saruman, when
2: Gandalf becomes Gandalf the White and represents all these things, Saruman becomes the Mm many-colored. Where it's all for him about despair and there are so many different forces and perspectives that... He gives in to, well, I'm going to join the side that's going to win and I'm going to take control.
3: Yeah, it becomes the many colored, but for the, the wizards were separated by colors, I think, not to hearken to race or anything, just but like the color of their robes, their theme, uh, for a reason, to mm-hmm. focus on one area of what the world needed. Hmm.
2: Yeah, and aren't there some that don't even show up in Lord of the Rings that are
3: like forced? Yeah, Radagast, wizards, the yeah. brown, he's mainly about nature. Yeah. He shows up in the Hobbit, but the Hobbit movies are Oh they're they're fun, but they're just not Well Peter Jackson accurate. wasn't supposed to do them, right? Initially. I not think it was initially. somebody
2: else. And so they brought Jackson back in and he had a rush job. He really should've made it like two movies probably and made those two movies smaller.
3: Yeah, I mean the thing that broke my heart about it was that Ian McKellen plays Gandalf. There was a day on set that he started crying because he was sitting in a room with surrounded by nothing but green screens and sticks with tennis balls on the top of them to depict the dwarves sitting around in Bilbo's Hobbit hole. And he started crying because this is a method actor who's, you know, late into his 70s, maybe even 80s, I'm I'm not certain. And he knows they're not putting in the same work as they did on Lord of the Rings. Right. I mean, it's they needed to wait on the Hobbit so they could have these fantastical images. Mm. Smaug, uh, you know Benedict Cumberda- Cumberbatch did a phenomenal job as Smaug, but you know Ian McKellen just he did a great job. But behind the scenes, he was he was heartbroken.
2: Yeah, and the movies really they're they're fantastical, but they're not that good. No. in my opinion, uh, the Lord really. of the Rings movies are though. They um, are. And let's quickly go back to the phones. And go to Nate. Nate, how you doing today, man?
1: Good, sir. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Who's your guest? I didn't hear the introduction for he him. He is, sounds very...
2: he is my brother, but, Will Clark. Hello.
1: Oh, okay. Wonderful. He's very well educated on the ways of the Lord of the Rings, I, I can tell. The, um, I, I have to disagree with you, Joey. Okay. I, I don't see you as a hobbit. Okay. I see you more as a young Gandalf being as intellectual as you are. But also, you are kind of, you're kind of one of those people that you're not of this world, mm. but you try to unite people that are of the world, that want to pick sides, that want to be left alone. You kind of, you kind of are that glue where people rally around you because you're such an engaging person, and you t- and, but you, you are separated from the world itself.
3: Nate, I would have to agree with you you completely, because Gandalf at the beginning in the fellowship, he does not even dare touch the ring, because he knows what kind of power it could wield through him. And, Joey, in a way, you've always said that you don't want to hold political office.
2: Yeah, that's right. The reason I'm a libertarian is because I think I'm a natural authoritarian, that if I got real power, I would be terrible.
3: Right. And that's very... Very much like Gandalf. Good Man, y'all there, are mate.
2: really playing into my messiah complex here. Try,
3: try not to make the same mistake as John Lennon. We'll cut your hair and you'll get one step closer to not doing that.
1: But, um, you know, I think it's great to talk about this because there's so many layers to Lord of the Rings. And, and, you know, the common person will pass it off as, oh, it's some fantasy movie. I'm not. But when you really take the time to watch it and Enjoy all that it has to offer. It really draws you in, and you can find so much truth in it to apply in your own life. And
2: that's absolutely right. And don't go into these movies, folks, if you haven't, if you gave them a try and you didn't like them, or you didn't ever give it a chance, don't go into it thinking, oh, this is going to be escapism. I don't have to do anything, turn my brain off a little bit. No, go into it thinking it's kind of work and something to study. Yeah. And it, it will enrich your life. And if there's a word you don't understand, which there's going to be a lot of them, look mm-hmm. it up. Yeah. there's this thing called the Internet.
3: Yeah. Or a uh, Tolkien to, dictionary.
1: And to, and to paraphrase uh, Frodo, I want to hear more about uh, Joey Clark. That's the real story I want to hear. Oh, Lord.
2: <laughs> I don't want to give the game away <laughs> yet,
1: Nate. Y'all have a good night. You, you too. too.
2: Oh, Listen, let's go blind here for a second. Just bring this person on airwaves. New Newstalk, who's this year on the air with Joey and his brother, Will.
0: What's going on, fellas? What's up,
2: Brent? We only got about a minute here, but...
0: uh... I I just want to say, I I mean, you know, of course, I heard uh, your first show when your brother was on. And I heard what you said on on Baron's show. I got to say, hey... If you thought the other show wasn't live, it's live. This one, hey, talked about what you knew. And man, man, y'all flow tonight. But the reason I called was, Joy, I got one question. Mm-hmm. you yeah, I hear y'all talk about enjoying these movies. I hear Baron and talk about enjoying indie racing, and but y'all still know so much about what's going on. I, I, I ain't watched a NASCAR race in three years since I heard Baron the first time. How, how you how you shut that off and then enjoy the rest of life, and then well you still up to date on everything? Well,
2: for me, it's become where I don't take the politics, especially what we see in cable news, like the partisan back and forth. I don't take it seriously. And you find as you do this job more and more, to be completely honest, Randall, that the partisan back and forth is almost like a very simple playbook. Um, And it's the more like the deep policy stuff you actually have to study up on. And your question's a good one. How do you find the time? And I shut my brain off by just doing. It's not really. Don't even think of it as shutting it off. When I go home, and I listen to music, or we watch something funny. You just enjoy the thing in front of you. Like try not to let the world that you is beyond your control ruin your day. That is something I used to do a lot. Things way beyond my control. I get mad at it and I scream, yell. Will has seen it. I no. get and I learned that. Why am I letting something I can't control at all? ruin my day and uh, it's been a tough lesson and you can find it in the serenity prayer you can find it in the stoic epictetus uh, that it's an old piece of wisdom that we could all learn from Randall we're out of time and Will we're out of time thank you for joining me man we've, uh,
3: we've gone there and back again brother. we've gone there and back again love you brother love you too